Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, and welcome to the New Books on Sports, a podcast channel on the uh, New Books Network. I am Dr. Jorge Red of Texas Tech University, the host of the channel. And today we will be talking with Kat Ariel. And we're going to be talking about her new book, Passing the Baton, Black Women's Star, Track Stars and American Identity, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2020. Kat, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I really enjoyed the book, and I think this is a book that is uh, a very, very important contribution to the uh, the story of American sporting history. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the various aspects of your books. But before we do that, uh, give us a little bit of your background, um, where you got your degrees and where you're working now. Yeah, um, I grew up in Northeast Georgia, an avid athlete, I guess, with a long-time interest in sports and, to a lesser extent, sport history. Um, I got my undergraduate undergraduate degree at the University of the South, my master's, in, and that was in American Studies, my master's in American History at the University of Georgia, my PhD in American History at the University of Miami, Florida. Coral Gables, mm-hmm. and I currently am a um, an instructor of history at Middle Tennessee State University. Okay, okay. Um, now you you've already, I guess, given us a bit of a sense of why you would be interested in this topic, but give us a little bit of the background as to what made you focus on this particular topic, African American. Uh, a female track stars. Yeah, I feel like it's sort of a, a winding path there. Um, I completed my master's thesis on women's distance running and kind of the post-Title IX commodification focus on femininity that sort of led to the, dis- that was part of the distance running boom in the late 70s and early 80s. And I guess as a 
somewhat naive young history student, I sort of wanted to find my athletic predecessors as I was very much into um, kind of competitive distance running at that time. Mm -hmm. And in the end, it sort of resulted in frustration in that my findings, my research kind of confirmed what previous scholars had discovered that there's this kind of standard narrative of athletic femininity, women perform women or white women performing this certain level of femininity in order to compete in a supposedly strenuous sport like distance running. Mm -hmm. So as I entered my PhD program, I wanted to kind of take a broader perspective and, you know, kind of thinking, okay, maybe I need to go back further in time, push back the periodization, kind of look at and interrogate that kind of pre title nine era. And I guess it was a bit of a happenstance that I specifically landed on black women track stars as part of a research seminar. I was kind of charged with doing some sort of original research and looking for, I guess, as many scholars of women's sport know that it's sometimes hard to find kind of that nitty gritty archival material about women athletes. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I did discover that the uh, Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs at the University of Arkansas had some stuff on Wilma Rudolph's um, work as a goodwill ambassador. So that sort of gave me this, I guess, raw historical material to start with. And so I began with, um, I guess, completed some research on Rudolph and ended that with the question, kind of, how did Rudolph become Rudolph? She is this kind of pedestaled as this exceptional black woman athlete who was, you know, positioned as distinct from the broader population of black women athletes. Mm -hmm. So kind of exploring, was that the case? How did Wilma Rudolph become Wilma Rudolph? And sort of try to move, motivate, I was motivated to move beyond that more, I guess, isolated her story, recovery narratives of women athletes and specifically of black women athletes and see what would happen if we insert them at the center of a broader examination of women's sport history, of American history, and kind of recognize that their historical experiences can be seen as part of this bigger narrative, not sort of adjacent to or separate from the dominant narrative of women's sport history, which has traditionally centered and privileged kind of the experiences of white women athletes as the significant moments of progress or lack thereof. Okay. Okay. And, and, you know, I guess in, in this particular, in answering that particular question, I think you, you, you really have laid the framework for us to move on and begin to discuss the various parts of, of the book. And you, you have sort of answered the, this question that I'm about to ask right now, but you talk about in the introduction of your work that these black track women countered or came up against, quote, the boundaries of belonging. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I uh, guess the term boundaries of belonging is something I sort of came up to, came up with to express who can be or who is considered kind of a full ideal American or American citizen according to the cultural and social expectations and traditions of the U.S. during 
the post World War II and Civil War or Civil War, Cold War era right, that I right. focus on. Um, so I guess it's kind of a term to capture cultural citizenship, but it's kind of I guess less loaded with official connotations like using the term citizenship would be. So kind of, and I think boundaries of belonging also captures kind of the fluidity that these boundaries are kind of malleable. And that's something that I um, try to express through the subsequent chapters and examinations. And and you do you do a wonderful job on that, I must say. And again, we'll, we'll talk about that as we move forward now. A little bit later on in the introduction, you used uh, you had another phrase that I thought was was quite interesting. You talk about that one of the goals in this work is for for you to argue, quote, the agentic influence of black American women athletes. And, you know, I took that to mean that these women were not being acted upon that they themselves were actors and and they were taking um, responsibility and, and agency for their career, the way that they responded to some of the um, some of the things that they ran into, some of the, uh, the some of the uh, uh, attempts that were made to sort of limit their ability to express themselves as athletes and as individuals and as women. So talk a little bit about that particular aspect of your work. Yeah, you uh, really hit on what I was trying to emphasize and get across and kind of reiterating what I said earlier that I wanted to challenge and expand the dominant, dominant narrative of women's sport history, which had centered white women. And in the 1950s, it, I guess the standard narrative is this was sort of a low point for American women athletes because of the various conservative social prescriptions that were to keep you know women in the home, very feminine, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But you know, as we will get to, Wilma Rudolph won three gold medals at the 1960 Olympic Games. So that's you know right on the heels of this supposed like low point period. So if we, you know, I guess turn our lens, turn our focus to the broader population of women athletes, is this, you know, a low point period? And it was not in just the idea that, okay, white women were absent from the kind of track scene because of cultural and social um, prohibitions, but instead that these young black women had talent and they had athleticism and ambition and they kind of inserted themselves onto prominent athletic stages. It was not just, you know, by happenstance that they just sort of were able to take advantage of an opportunity, but they, you know, very much actively put themselves in that position. And through their achievements, they forced U.S. sport culture, U.S. culture, the media to recognize them and make sense of them. So they were not, you know, simple beneficiaries of what was happening. Um, And I think, you know, U.S. sport culture was not necessarily looking for young black women athletes to emerge as these, you know, promising Olympians. Right. But they did. And in in doing so, they required U.S. sport sport culture, the broader culture, to try to fit them into, I guess, the ideological imaginings of what the United States and U.S. sports should look like. 
You know, should yeah. they be excluded? Should they be ignored? Should they be included, tolerated, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah, um, they're, they're they're winning they're winning medals for the United States, and they're they're helping us compete against the uh, against the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc nations in the Olympics. By the time that we get into the 1950s, so we need to deal with these women athletes who are uh, achieving great things. But at the same time, how do we deal? How does the United States deal with these women? Yeah, exactly, and. I guess another in emphasizing their agency, I guess narratives about black women athletes that tend to focus on kind of their situate them at whether to at Tuskegee or Tennessee state mm-hmm. kind of what I find overly credit these institutions for shaping them, for making them who they are. And I also want to recognize that, these young women were not totally the product of these institutions, but they helped influence the kind of organizational infrastructure at Tuskegee and TSU that what that did, you know, in fact, that or that did help cultivate their success. But again, it was their actions and their influence that was also critical to that process. And okay. Okay. I think we'll get well, into that when we discuss uh, Mayfags later. Right, and and, and well, and we'll get to, we'll get to her in in, in a little bit. But uh, let's start off with Alan Alice Coachman. Uh, in chapter one, you focus on her, and and here you argue that she was presented as a figure of quote black womanhood by the black sports culture, yet she was ignored by the white defined culture. Uh, what do you mean by this? And why did these two groups have such different perspectives of such a great athlete like Alice Coachman? I think most simply, um, it's the reflective of or illustrative of the Jim Crow South, Jim Crow society, and that two very different racialized perspectives. Um, you had black sport culture, which was primarily a black middle class perspective that had this had a kind of assimilationist priorities, believing that by um, kind of performing white defined gender norms, black Americans could prove that they deserved the rights, opportunities of American citizenship. So mm-hmm. the black sport culture sort of crafted their images of coachmen within that context to help to, I guess, situate her as part of that cause where you, in contrast, you had a resistant mainstream or white sport culture that was kind of clinging to, uh, you know, white supremacist culture where black women were to be submissive to white desires, whether as a domestic or kind of an object of forbidden pleasure for white men or just totally ostracized as, you know, unwomanly. And Mm -hmm. Alice Coachman did not fit either of those roles. Um, So, yeah, because of her kind of successful performance of white defined gender norms, she could not, you know, easily be cast as unwomanly. So in turn, it was, she was just sort of ignored. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, you know, one of the things that I've that I've done a lot of work in, in 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 my own research is trying to sort of look to see how uh, different types of athletes, and and in my case specifically the uh, Latinos, Latinas, and uh, how they participate in in athletics, and how that challenges the way that 
the broader society perceives the abilities and the agency of these individuals and the abilities of these of these individual athletes. And I think you do a very nice job in, in Alice Coachman is, a, I think, a very good example of how difficult it is for uh, some folks in the majority culture to accept that diff- people of different backgrounds can be good athletes as well. Yeah, exactly. All right, uh, let's go over to chapter two now and let's talk a little bit. And again, this I think this ties in very nicely with, with what we've just talked about. In chapter two, you talk about how these African-American women track stars were, quote, used to advertise the superiority of American democracy in the, in the early, early 50s. Yet these competitors created issues in American sport, quote, because they inserted both blackness and femaleness into the image of Americanness. What do you mean by that? And how are these women challenging the um, Americanness on an international scale? Yeah, that gets at the kind of different audiences and different contexts through which U.S. sport culture sought to make sense of the increasing successes of Black women track athletes. So, in I think a uh, um, the I guess two kind of contrasting examples of this are the L.A. relays in the early 1950s um, and the Pan American Games in Latin America um, in the early 1950s. So in competing in Latin America at the Pan American Games in the context of the Cold War, black women track stars kind of could insert people of color into the image of American democracy in hopes of challenging accurate Soviet Union accusations of U.S. racism. Mm -hmm. However, domestically, U.S. sport, U.S. society remained committed to an image of American athleticism, American identity that was organized around heteronormative whiteness, kind of that standard 1950s U.S. image. Mm-hmm. So I think um, in particular, looking at Jean Patton's experience at the Los Angeles Relays versus her experience at the Pan American Games really mm-hmm. illustrates this and that the L.A. Relays um, brought in, I guess, Mar- Marjorie Jackson, who was a white Australian runner to compete against black women athletes from Tuskegee and Tennessee state. And it was kind of assumed that Jackson would be kind of this role model of an unoffensive white women's athleticism Mm -hmm. yet. And she was at the time, the world record holder in, um, I believe the hundred meters and Patton surprises and went kind of comes from behind to defeat Jackson and the next year, the LA Relays kind of calls off the women's portion of the um, event. Yeah. So it's, I mean, maybe some people would consider it an interpretive leap, but it seems like here we have this instance of kind of, and the LA Relays were kind of one of the biggest domestic U.S. track events um, at that time. So for women to go from invited to uninvited after this great success by a black woman sprinter suggests there was maybe they saw something they didn't necessarily want to see or want to deal with. Yeah. In contrast, when Patton was um, the most one of the most successful 
athletes at the Pan American Games um, in uh, Argentina in 1951. It was very much, while um, certainly U.S. sport culture did not overly celebrate her, there was not a kind of effort to, I guess, ignore or obscure her efforts and that especially the fact that um, some of the, I guess, Latin American presses recognized her was seen as uh, positive and showing kind of the better side of the United States or what was imagined to be the better side of the United States um, in contra, I guess, in contravention of the reality. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and again, moving along again uh, along the same uh, the same type of, uh, of of arguments and issues in chapter three, you talk about now we're getting into the civil rights movement era, and you're looking at the colliding demands of the Cold War and the civil rights movement, uh, and how this helps to grant these athletes a proper propagandistic purpose. What do you mean by that? You argue that after the 56 Melbourne Games, such competitors became, quote, powerful symbols of the promise of American democracy. All the while, these women, particularly May Fags, demonstrated agency. How do these these two points work together and what results does this produce? Yeah, so starting off with May Fags and the emphasis on agency, um, Fags was very influential in shaping the kind of women's track culture at Tennessee State, the Tiger Bell track culture, or the so-called Temple Way. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, many people who are familiar with kind of the history of black women's sport are very fam- probably familiar with the name Ed Temple. And Ed Temple was, of course, very influential. But I think it's important to recognize that May Fags helped to influence Temple and shape his ideas. And I borrow a theory from a sociologist, Amy Meredith Cox, which she developed in studying black girls at a Detroit homeless shelter um, in the 21st century. She talks about the entitlement of young black women. And I think May Fags embodied this idea, this idea that who they were or their circumstances should not um, prevent them from accessing opportunities accessing rights they were equally entitled to fully experience their lives as they saw fit and fags really brought that spirit into the tennessee state um, program when they refused to fund her trip to various aau championships she considered leaving the program she eventually stayed but she very much passed on that sense of self-esteem, self-determination, which was denied by society to other Tiger Bells. And I think it's particularly evident with Wilma Rudolph in that Rudolph arrived at Tennessee State as kind of this incredibly shy young sprinter who frequently did not, I guess, maximize her talent because she didn't necessarily want to offend anyone. She wanted to fit in or blend in. Yet by the time we get to the 1956 Olympics, Rudolph becomes really, I guess, ticked off with herself for not performing up to par. And you are kind of able to see it's that influence that Fags was able to have on her to kind of inculcate Rudolph 
with that sense of self-belief. So, and then once again, through their achievements, through their accomplishments, through their agency, they force U.S. sport sport culture to make sense of them, um, and which eventually led to kind of them becoming more inserted into the image of American sport, um, especially at the 1956 Olympics, where we have this heightened Cold War context, heightened kind of civil rights context, mm-hmm. which really encouraged American sport culture, the mainstream media, to begin to see and endorse these women as symbols of the promise of American democracy and the best of what America imagined itself to be, kind of in contrast to the kind of toleration of previous um, years' events. And I think something that really illustrates that is looking at the performances of, I guess, non-American white women at the 1948 Olympic Games. I guess Fanny Blankers Cohen was kind of the superstar woman athlete. And Mm -hmm. in the U.S. press, she got much more coverage. Um, She was from the Netherlands. And from the U.S. press, she got much more coverage than Alice Coachman. In 1956, it's Betty Cuthbert, who is the 18-year-old, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, home country Australian runner who was very successful, who beat Wilma Rudolph. But the U.S. press, including kind of the mainstream white-controlled press, didn't really give her much attention. And even if they did not necessarily give an immense amount of coverage to Mildred McDaniel, to the uh, Tiger Bell relay team, they gave them much more coverage than, I guess, in comparison to Cuthbert versus the situation with Blankers Cohen and um, Coachman, I guess, eight years prior. Okay. Okay. All right. So now we'll move on to chapter four. And, and now you begin to focus on, on Wilma Rudolph and you say uh, how Wilma Rudolph and others and how they demonstrated, quote, the central role of heteronormativity in determining the boundaries of belonging in modern America. And, and, and I guess the, the best way to sum this up is that you're, you're sort of now shifting focus a little bit, your lens a little bit. You're going from blackness as part of being a representation of Americanness to even if these African-American women are now being given a certain degree of acceptance as American, being part of this Americanness, but they still have to demonstrate heteronormativity. What do you mean by this? And does this really, did this reality help break down barriers while maintaining others? Yes, I think this reality definitely helped break down barriers while maintaining others. Um, Rudolph perfectly performed heteronormativity, um, which I define as kind of the white defined middle class ish normative gender roles. Um, Rudolph was conventionally beautiful, she had light skin. So there was a kind of proximity to and a successful performance of white femininity with um, how she was kind of perceived and um, interpreted, which encouraged her kind of acceptance and elevation as this icon of American sport. So we see how the boundaries of belonging could kind of bend to accommodate a successful woman of color who looked and acted or was at least perceived to act as Rudolph did. Um, We see something similar with 
Diane Nash, who was a leader of the Nashville student movement, who was also very light-skinned and conventionally attractive. Um, in their book on Wilma Rudolph, um, Maureen Smith and Rita Liberti talk about Dorothy Dandridge um, being seen in that same light. And so with Rudolph being kind of interpreted, understood this way, it um, kind of established this unreasonable expectation on other black women track stars Mm -hmm. that they had to, you know, imitate Rudolph to be praised, to be celebrated as American athletes or American icons. And in turn, work to further entrench white defined heteronormativity as kind of the prerequisite for those primarily because of color who were excluded from the boundaries of belonging to be brought in. And I think we see kind of a similar dynamic with gay and lesbian Americans of this era with the homophile movement emphasize where gay and lesbian Americans sought to emphasize their similarity to heterosexual mm-hmm. middle-class white Americans in order to assimilate into um, kind of normative Americanness. So this kind of assimilating to heteronormativity for a black woman athlete similarly worked to entrench this kind of norm of what it, how one could be kind of accepted um, as, uh, I guess, valid representative of American identity. But at the same time, Wilma Rudolph had a child out of wedlock Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and, and of course, that was covered up in order to maintain this, you know, heteronormative white standards that you don't have children, you don't have children out of wedlock. Yeah, so I think we'd see how black sport culture, which again had very kind of middle class norms, were invested in presenting Rudolph as kind of embodying this kind of heteronormativity and that Mm. they did not, you know, disclose Rudolph's um, out of wedlock child when she would later, you know, get married. It was kind of presented that Wilma Rudolph's about to start a family when in actuality she had had a family um, before. Mm -hmm. So I think that sort of in, I guess the investment by both, Whereas when we were talking about Alice Coachman, there was the very different perspectives of white sport culture and black sport culture. Now there's more of a convergence of both wanting to see Rudolph as kind of performing or, I guess, a representative of normative Americanness. Okay. Yeah. In chapter five, you you continue to focus on Rudolph, but you, you're now looking at her triumphs in Rome and later, and you argue that the way that she was interpreted contained, quote, the more radical possibilities represented by black women's athleticism and preserved a more conservative model of American belonging. And I mean, you've, you've fleshed that out to a certain extent, but you know, can you flesh it out a little bit more based on the research that you did in that particular, for that particular chapter? Yeah, I think this kind of touches back on what you were just talking or bringing up her single motherhood and how looking at kind of researching Rudolph, how 
much her agency was ignored, how she was intentionally seen through these very more, I guess, these conservative lenses with her single motherhood erased. Um, mm-hmm. With, um, and I guess, how Rudolph sought to, especially after she became a bit overwhelmed after her success in Rome with all these demands placed on her, she, you know, secretly or she was, she got married and was able to keep it a secret for a few months. So that effort to kind of claim her own kind of space and not necessarily perform Wilma Rudolph, but to live as Wilma Rudolph. Um, She did voice criticisms of kind of America's kind of race relations while in Rome, but those were, you know, largely, Silence not covered, even in the black press, in favor of this very optimistic image of her. Um, Similarly, when her hometown of Clarksville, Tennessee, had the big integrated parade for her, which was, you know, very celebrated. Again, here we have the supposed best of American democracy versus two years later, she and about 300 other um, Clarksvillians attempted to integrate a local restaurant and were unsuccessful and how that event was sort of, even in the black press, just sort of perfunctorily reported on when, again, we see her acting in a way that is kind of outside that image that Mm -hmm. she was made to fit into. So this very imperfect and alternative uh, agentic Rudolph that was kind of not seen and not celebrated versus the kind of perfectly imagined Rudolph that became kind of this assimilationist, um, meritocratic ideal kind of American icon. Okay. Okay. Now in the conclusion, you argue that Rudolph's iconicity, uh, opened a space for white women to earn acclaim as athletes while at the same time imposing quote, an impossible standard of acceptance upon black American women athletes. What do you mean by this? And did the achievements of athletes such as Rudolph and later Jackie Joyner Kersey, Florence Griffith Joyner and Serena Williams ultimately help move us closer to the quote possibility of an unbounded Americanness? You know, it, it's kind of like, uh, in in my uh, second half of U.S. history class, I always mention uh, those uh, the ad uh, from that cigarette company from the late 1970s. Uh, that there was it was for Eve cigarettes that was uh, sold specifically to women. And the 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 ad said, "You've come a long way." Uh, have the has the 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 success, the achievements of a Wilma Rudolph, Jackie Joyner, Kersey, Florence uh, Griffith Joyner, Serena Williams, have they moved us closer to that quote possibility of an unbounded Americanness? Yes, I think so, but I guess slightly closer. Um, I guess first to address how Rudolph opened kind of a space for white women to earn mm-hmm. acclaim that as I understood it, Rudolph provided proof that of kind of the coexistence of that femininity and athleticism could coexist. And um, she did it through the body of a woman of color. So kind of the idea that, well, could white women who are 
you know, the culture to believe to be undoubtedly feminine, could they do this too? So we see this increased visibility of white women competing in track and field in that kind of immediate post-Rudolph moment. And it was, Mm -hmm. you know, not this great explosion, but I think it was nevertheless significant because it was kind of no longer seen as totally forbidden. Um, And I think, you know, at this time, I guess Sports Illustrated has sort of established itself as sort of the standard bearer for American sport culture. And in the early 1960s, you have two covers with white women, track stars and distance runners on the cover of Sports Illustrated when Wilmer Rudolph had never been on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Mm. And as many scholars have subsequently analyzed, women who are competing actually competing in athletics have rarely been on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Yeah. So I think that's um, a pretty significant shift there that you see come right on the heels of Rudolph's success. So we see how, again, Rudolph was understood as approximating white femininity, which aided her acclaim in that gendered performance kind of was possible for other white women, but not possible for... um other black women, especially those with dark, darker skin, like Wyoming Atias, who um, yeah. was Rudolph's immediate successor. Um, and then I guess in regard to moving closer to that possibility of an unbounded Americanness, I think with Joyner Kersey, with Flojo, with Serena, we continue to see how these prominent Black women athletes are very subject to the shifting standards of racialized and gendered behavior norms that are imposed on them and how they are to, they have to meet these standards to kind of become visible, to become accepted, celebrated, et cetera, and how they are sort of have to meet the needs of the moment in order to have to meet the needs of the moment in a way that kind of bolsters normative American identity in order to kind of receive kind of a level of celebration commensurate with their athletic achievement. Um, And I guess we kind of see this in comparing Joyner-Kersey to Griffin Joyner in that Jackie Joyner-Kersey better fit that sort of meritocratic narrative of hard, you know, hard work and achievement. Whereas Flojo offered a very bold brand of black Mm. athletic femininity and Mm -hmm in turn faced accusations of steroid steroid use etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah yeah but uh, oh go, go ahead go ahead no uh, i was going to say i do think we are moving closer to that possibility of an unbounded americanist because despite these shifting standards we see black women athletes continue to compete and compete and succeed in a broader spectrum of sports including the traditionally white sport of tennis with um Serena, her sister Venus, with the likes of Simone Biles and gymnastics. Mm-hmm. So I think by having these women continue to assert their athletic agency in this greater spectrum of athletic context, they continue to challenge these still entrenched notions of what an ideal American athlete or an ideal American um, in general should be. Let me let me ask you this, and and you know this 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 question just popped into my mind. Do you think that maybe, you know, the the WNBA 
has come a long way in in its existence. But do you think that WNBA athletes, both uh, uh, African American and 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 white, how do they fit into the notion of an American female athlete? At, at the present time, it, it seems to me that there's still need, there's still work to be done, I guess, that, that, that the WNBA athletes are maybe um, in a situation similar to what some of these uh, uh, African-American track athletes that you talked about in your book were, you know, a few decades ago. What do you, what is your sense about that? Uh that's my next my next research project, my ah. next book project. So I've been um, digging into a lot of stuff with kind of looking at the lo- the longer trajectory of women's pro basketball. Um, and yeah, I think you you're right that things are still um, behind in the WNBA, and we see in our current moment how there is primarily a player-led focus to kind of increase the visibility of the majority black women who make up the WNBA. Mm -hmm. But if you look at kind of, I guess, jersey sales as a metric, you still see this sort of, it's the white players who kind of remain the most popular. And I think the, the, I guess the players who are most able to, you know, even though many of them identify as gay or non, non-heterosexual, that still those who are able to kind of approximate that kind of standard all-American girl image um, tend to, I guess, be at the, be at the center of, I guess, how the WNBA is still perceived. Um, yeah, so I'm still... Yeah, I guess I've been digging into that a good bit and kind of figuring out how to make sense of everything. But okay. from, okay. I guess, preliminary stuff, looking back at a longer trajectory, that this kind of investment in whiteness and kind of performing white norms that kind of the same norms that were imposed on Rudolph back in the 1960s have also been imposed on WNBA athletes and whether you see in the early days of the league, there was much emphasis on Lisa Leslie's, you know, femininity, right. Emphasis on Cheryl swoops being a mother. Yeah, exactly. You you have kind of a very conventionally attractive, lighter skinned Candace Parker, who is very Mm. popular. So we see the kind of stickiness of these norms and, Again, I credit the current, I guess, population of WNBA players for working to kind of challenge these norms, but I think they're still quite sticky. Okay, okay. And and, and I think that, um, you know, obviously uh, Cheryl Swoops is is a legend uh, on the campus of Texas Tech, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But but there was, you know, to sort of just emphasize uh, some of the points that you've just brought up, there was a certain amount of, uh, shall we say, uh, 
uh, th- there were some issues uh, uh, in the more so, I guess, in the in the broader population of Lubbock and West Texas when she uh, when she came out as uh, as 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 uh, divorced her husband and, and and became you know was was a, a lesbian. Uh, uh, the, the, there's there's I think a really rich aspect to this story that you'll find here on the campus of Texas Tech. So just. So you know, maybe maybe we might uh, we might actually have you come out here and talk uh, talk to some of our students somewhere down the line as part of your research. Yeah, I have dug into some of this kind of coverage of that nineteen ninety three national title, um, and I guess that was something I was vaguely aware of, but didn't know like the specifics of Swoops's path to Texas Tech and kind of. Mm the broader characteristics of the team. So I think it is um, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is there, is there anything in your book, Kat, that we've not discussed that you, you want to share with the, with the audience? Um, I don't think so. I really, I think you did a a great job with your questions and kind of pulling out um, the key points of emphases. Okay. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time and, and uh, Kat, and I want to thank you for, for visiting with me today. Once again, uh, the name of the book is Passing the Baton, Black Women, Track Stars, and American Identity by Kat Ariel, University of Illinois Press 2020. Kat, thank you so much for visiting with us, and I, I hope we can talk again soon. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you.